Welcome to the Annie Gamers Podcast. This is episode number 137. I'm your host, Evan Minto, and not with me today is my regular host, David Estrella. In his place is special guest, Natasha. You might know her as Illogenes on Twitter. This is her second time on the Annie Gamers Podcast. Uh, she is an anime blogger, uh, and uh, she, she'll, she'll tell you more about this at the end of the show, but uh, writes for... Ooh, let's see if I can get this right. Shibereru.wordpress.com. You nailed it. Nice. <laughs> and freelances for IGN and Crunchyroll. Welcome back to the show, Natasha. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's good to be back. Uh, I know this is probably an interesting scenario or time to do it, but uh, always, always happy to be on this podcast. Yeah, the the unfortunate part, I mean, <laughs> not the unfortunate part, one of many unfortunate parts about lockdown and quarantine and all this stuff is uh that someone like natasha who i previously had on the show in person which is always nice because we we both live in the bay area uh now has to call in because i have not seen anyone in person for weeks (laughs) god it it sounds so much weirder when you say it like out loud it's it's like an acknowledged fact and then you say it and you're like wow yeah it has been a couple of weeks yeah for sure natasha is here to help me review liz and the bluebird which we will get into shortly uh before that though i did want to address some news that um a lot of you have probably heard at this point uh considering when this episode is going to come out especially zach bershey the executive editor of anime news network uh passed away last week uh and yeah i mean there's a lot to say here uh, I've I submitted some audio that that will uh, likely be played at uh, his public memorial service uh, that that uh, some folks are putting on for him. Uh, but I, I, I do want to kind of talk about him here briefly. Zach was a really big part of why I got into writing and podcasting about anime. And, you know, I was I mean, I was a fan of him like back when I was in high school, which I guess was when I was recording this p- podcast. Uh, <laughs> I've been doing it for a very long time. But yeah, I mean, I was I was reading his work. Uh, he was he was like this this hero of mine representing what it meant to be like an anime journalist. And he still has been, I think, to people like you too, Natasha, right? Like this, this representative of just like someone who made this passion into a, a real career and was like a real professional in doing it. He was also obviously he was an incredible writer, amazing critic. Uh, he had this really deep love of film and animation and uh, what I always appreciated, one of many things I always appreciated was his uncompromising taste. Uh, Zach was not one to mince words about his opinions. Uh, in more recent years, I, I got to know Zach personally and uh, and ended up being friends with him, which is still, um, you know, something I'm incredibly proud of. This person who is a hero of mine who, you know, wanted to hang out with me. <laughs> right. But I, I discovered that that Zach was, uh, you know, outside of the the persona that you got from from his writing and things, uh, he was also an incredibly kind, humble person, and and really committed to building healthy communities in in the anime uh, fandom, uh, which we don't always have, and that that really is a big deal to have somebody uh, at the level of influence that Zach was, who is so committed to you know making the world a better place and specifically making the communities he was part of uh, safer and and healthier for especially for marginalized people, which I think he was you know that was that was a really incredible thing about Zach. And uh, you know I, I've talked about this a little bit on Twitter, but but uh, a moment that that really sticks out to me is is the the time the moment when Zach asked me to write for Anime News Network, uh, which was really just a sort of casual conversation. Uh, was uh, one of the 
proudest moments of my career in uh, in anime and uh, it really meant so much that he believed in me and, and pushed to get my articles published um and uh, i'm i'm it, i don't think it's it's completely sunk in yet that he's gone uh but i'm absolutely going to miss him yeah it's 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 been it's been a um it's been a couple of days and it's it's allowed i think a lot of us to kind of process and grieve properly and um i unfortunately did not know zach as closely as, as some of my peers. Um, but, you know, it's funny you mentioned the word career, uh, Evan, because for most of my life in, in digesting uh, this medium and working with it, I never thought that was a possibility. Uh, Zach did not carve that out directly for me, but he played an influential role in, in creating those possibilities and opportunities for people. Um, it's amazing. Yeah, like the, the very fact that you could have a career doing it is like something that i think a lot of us attribute to like looking at zach and being like look at this guy he did it yeah right and um i i think it is something to be said when a person has had an influence on your life whether you directly come into the contact with that person or if you shared a few drinks with that person or heck if you're like best friends with that person and and zach was that to many people uh he was someone people look forward to in writing. He was a hero. He was a friend. Um, he he carved out opportunities for for people like us to be able to contribute and and be able to openly discuss our opinions and have even things like this on a regular basis. Um, and it the world is definitely a little a little especially this community is is a little lonelier. Um, and we've we've really lost someone important. And um, yeah, it's 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 not been a great week but i think it's also a great time in the sense of being able to reflect and also uh revisit a lot of the stuff he has done for us in writing and not also in writing in actions and in thoughts and the way he was a good friend so yeah and i did want to say something kind of relevant to this podcast which is you know maybe small in the grand scheme of things but is definitely a regret of mine is uh i've i've been on zach's podcast a couple times he was on this show many many years ago for what i would consider a kind of ill-advised episode where i tried to debate him on something <laughs> when i was much younger and like <clears throat> we weren't really friends at the time i think we, we were kind of like internet acquaintances um but uh i i really wanted to have him on the show like you know uh, in in more modern Anagamers episodes, and and you know, I've obviously still had so much respect for him, and, and thought he would make an amazing guest. Uh, and I really wish that I had made the time to do that earlier. Uh, just you know, that would have, I think, just me. I would have meant a lot to me personally to to you know really like have Zach on as a as a peer and a friend um, on this show. So uh, so with that, let's uh, let's move on into the the show proper uh i, I do want to quickly ask because uh, we don't have a q segment here uh natasha what uh you've been playing anything watching anything of note before we get to the review yeah uh it's it's an exciting time for anime uh in these times and by exciting i mean unfortunate because a lot of upcoming anime titles i've, I've been looking forward to have kind of been put on hold uh, things I've been watching are also being put on hold. Uh, in terms of anime that I'm currently consuming, I'm really enjoying Love is War Season 2. It's a great rom-com. If anyone really enjoys rom-com, I feel uh, that show nails the direction and execution of um, the manga. Uh, in terms of games, I was doing really well. Uh, I, I want to not really dive into mobile games. Uh, but I had a friend who introduced me Legend of Runeterra, 
And uh, my past four or five days, I would say, have been a pretty chaotic mess of diving deep into card games on mobile uh, mobile phones. So I've been exploring that. That's really fun. I, I know a lot of people who like Magic the Gathering, and I believe Hearthstone really like it. So um, I've never had exposure to it, but I'm, I'm learning a lot. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Descending into Moba Gay hell. If David were here, he would uh, he would be able to warn you like a like a a drug addict, an ex-drug addict coming into a school and telling kids like, look, this is what happens to you. David would be like that, uh, talking to you, Natasha. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. You're, uh, you see everyone play like Fate Go and Grand Blue Fantasy and you're like, oh, you know, I'm good. I'm good about those. I'm good about that gotcha. And then, and then lo and behold, something enters your life. And the next thing you know, you're just, it's, it's one in the morning, you're playing these games. I'm, I'm, we've all been there. I'm sure. I'm sure all of us have been there at one point in our lives. So not me. David tried to get me into it. Didn't work. Really? Oh wow. Yeah, that's a that's a story for another time. Uh, <laughs> so uh, let me let me kind of intro the review here because this is not just a regular old Annie Gamers review. This is uh, what we are calling a golden ticket review. This is a, a Patreon benefit. So as, as you may be aware. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash AnnieGamers, where, uh, where you can give uh, as much money as you'd like. Uh, $1 gets you a couple, uh, $1 a month gets you a couple benefits. Uh, $5 a month gets you everything, which includes access to bonus podcasts and articles and things like that. But also, notably, every pa- uh, patron at the $5 level and up gets uh, a single-use golden ticket where they can force one of our contributors to review a single title with a couple restrictions to make sure that you're not going to make us like watch every episode of Legend of the Galactic Heroes or something. But uh, we've we've had two people so far use them. Uh, one was to request something from Old Taku No Radio, our sister show. But one was used by our patron Zane, also known as Inazel. He uh, sends questions in quite a lot. And he requested that I review Liz and the Bluebird. So uh, this is me fulfilling that request. So thank you so much, Zane, for uh, for subscribing to the Patreon and for sending the golden ticket. A lot of people have not worked up the courage yet because it's single use. You know, they're sort of weighing their options. Uh, Zane jumped in and, and sent us a request. So uh, I, d- I want to read a, a little thing from Zane before I get into the review. Uh, so he just sent kind of some of his thoughts and, and why he picked it and some of the things that he wants to hear from us in the review. Uh, so here we go. Why I picked Liz and the Bluebird. Uh, he's got <laughs> he's got lettered uh, bullet points here. A, it's made by Kyoto Animation. So duh, everything they do is amazing animation, whether you like the story or not. B, anything Yuri or Yuri adjacent that doesn't objectify, uh, I like. Since most Yuri relationships seem to be fleshed out and have more meaning than most, in my opinion. It's interesting. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if... Uh, if Maybe Natasha agrees with that or not. Uh, (laughs) I really want to hear Natasha's thoughts on their relationship and how Nozomi's lack of understanding of Mizori's feelings and Mizori being codependent on Nozomi is portrayed through the storybook version of Liz and the Bluebird. We'll get into all of that Uh, and how rewarding or not the ending is. He wants to hear my thoughts on sound design coming from a musician, specifically on the choreography of character movement and traits and how they sync up with it. Uh, I really like the like Sound Euphonium, the series that it's based on, and the characters throughout the entire series. One thing I really loved about the movie was that they weren't afraid to change the character designs, and I feel it really worked. How did y'all feel about that? And lastly, uh, the fact that Naoko Yamada directed it, and everything she does has been great, and he wants to know what we think of her in particular and the job she did. So all of that is a great framework for 
what we will be talking about in the review proper. <laughs> um, appreciate your uh, your thoughts kicking us off there, Inezel. So let's uh, let's get started. Let's you know we, we've got some hints about what what we're talking about there from Inezel's uh, description, but let's kind of establish what Liz and the Bluebird is. Uh, this is a 2018 anime film that is a spinoff from the TV series Sound Euphonium, which uh, I did actually watch. By the way, uh, this was not. I mentioned this on a previous episode, I think, or maybe on a, a Patreon thing. But, uh, you know, I do the thing where I pull an Evan Minto and I, I have to go back and watch things so that I have all the context. Uh, I don't always do that. So this is no guarantee. You can't guarantee that you will trick me into watching like the whole franchise by picking the thing at the end of the franchise. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like this, this isn't a, isn't a surefire strategy. But in this case, I was curious about the TV series. And even though people said you could watch this movie without it, I was like, uh, you know, I'll give it a try. Uh, and, and it's, I've talked about it on the show. I, I enjoyed sound euphonium, not, not really like my favorite kind of show, but it's, it's a pretty good, uh, execution for what it is. Anyway, that we'll we'll compare it to Sound Euphonium as we get more into this review. But similar to that series, uh, Liz and the Bluebird is a drama centering around girls in a high school concert band. Though in this case, it's focused much more much more narrowly on on two main characters. Uh, and this was distributed by Eleven Arts here in the U.S., where it got theatrical screenings, like most anime do nowadays, which is pretty cool. It's it's crazy now that we really have gotten to that point where where we can just watch. Uh, KyoAni movies in theaters, but yeah, it's pretty cool. I know, yeah. I did not see it in the theater. I I ended up watching it, you know, at home during quarantine for this review. Uh, so we we're talking about Kyo anim- uh, Kyoto Animation there for a little bit. So let's let's establish some of the folks who made it. Uh, Kyoto Animation is, uh, of course, you know, very very famous studio uh, with a very recent uh, piece of tragic news from the past year, which we've discussed on the show. Uh, they were a, a victim of a uh, a very de- the deadliest uh, uh, basically the deadliest mass murder in modern Japanese history an arson attack on their studio. Um, but what they're known for uh, is this extremely lush, detail oriented animation. Uh, basically, their TV series, especially nowadays, look like other studios' films. <laughs> in terms of the kind of production uh, quality put into it. Yeah, their their animation style, fluidity, um, choreography, direction are all extremely uh, strong. And they it's it's usually known that if Kyoto animation series usually leave an impression on you, whether uh, it's the story, but mostly the animation. I mean, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people who, who really love their stories. I was never super into them, but nobody can really deny the level of talent on display in their animation. And uh, this is directed by Naoko Yamada, who is the director of K-On! But much more recently and more relevantly, the director of A Silent Voice, uh, among some other things. And written by uh, someone who works with her a lot, Reiko Yoshida, uh, who's also K-On! and A Silent Voice, as well as Violet Evergarden. And uh, we'll probably talk about some other folks. Uh, There's a few really, really great uh, uh, staffers who... uh, unfortunately passed away in the arson attack uh, who worked on this including the character designer Futoshi Nishia so let's get into what Sound Euphonium is about so for people who have watched Sound Euphonium uh, there are two side characters that are exploring season two 
Mizure Yorizuka and Nozomi Kasaki. Uh, they have a little bit of an arc in the second season that probably takes about two to three episodes. That was that was why I I wanted to watch the uh, the show because I I knew that they had like some kind of establishing story in the TV series. Yes. So in season two of Euphonium, uh, you find out that Mizure and Nozomi are best friends or were best friends uh, that used to play together in the concert band, but then kind of grew distant. Uh, the arc in that season kind of resolves their tension, but basically you get the gist that Mizure and Nozomi were very close. Mizure played the oboe, and then Nozomi played the flute. Uh, and so they are—they have a very unspoken kind of intimate relationship, but they're complete opposites of each other. So Nozomi is very popular. Uh, she's outgoing. She's very expressive. She's always, um, you know willing to talk about what she wants to do and what she likes she's like surrounded by friends all the time yeah yeah she's very she's very friendly um misere is extremely shy she very r- rarely speaks throughout uh the show and um because she's so quiet a lot of people find her kind of you know distant or hard to kind of approach yeah i'll, I'll kind of talk about this later but she's like you know when you think shy anime characters you can maybe might think like this sort of cute shyness but she's almost like an off-putting amount of shyness yeah where it's like yeah it, it's kind of it's kind of awkward it's really awkward to just watch her exist yes it's it there's definitely something off-putting about her behavior uh but yeah, in in this movie, uh, it focuses on both of them. They are both preparing for a duet um, in a piece based off a storybook called Liz and the Bluebird. Um, and it kind of focuses on the tension of the relationship. There's just, there's some, you know, they're not synchronizing well. And a lot of this is just because they have unrequited feelings. There's just not really solid communication going on. And the movie tries to explore how they come to terms with that and come to terms with their own feelings for each other, uh, while also paralleling that with the storybook itself. All right, so in the storybook, uh, there's a young woman named Liz who befriends a very happy-go-lucky girl who actually turns out to be a bird, but we can talk about that later. Right, it's like a magical bird. Yeah, she like she has the ability to transform into a bird basically. But they form a very fast friendship. Uh, but eventually, at the very end of the storybook, they have to part ways. Um, both Misere and Nozomi have very serious thoughts on the ending of this book. Misere finds this story to be tragic. Uh, but Nozomi thinks, you know, the, the book is great. And it kind of, that those thoughts kind of correlate to uh, themselves and their relationship as the movie proceeds. So it's kind of got this, like, these two parallel stories going on that are that are about each other, right? Yeah, it's it's definitely a very different tone than Soundophonium. And so I guess, like, you know, people will ask, well, do you have to watch Soundophonium to watch or to, to watch Listen to Bluebird or even enjoy That's it? That's definitely, like, one of the first things to ask about this, I think, for people. <laughs> I don't know about you, Evan. I feel like it's a yes and a no kind of thing. It's like, yeah, you can watch Listen to Bluebird without watching euphonium i'm happy i'm happy you said that yeah because uh i've complained i think on the show before about there's a the tendency for people who watch something like this that's a spin-off from some original material uh or a sequel or something to like they kind of want everyone to be in the club with them and they're like oh no 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 just watch it just watch it you really don't need to it's fine like 
I knew what was I knew the stuff from the series, but you don't need to know the stuff from the series, right? Because they don't want to like I think on a certain level, people don't want to have to pitch people on watching like a whole franchise. They want them to watch this thing that they love. Uh, but like sometimes, yeah, like it's hard to tell if if you're the person coming in who actually has experience with the rest of it. It's hard to tell how much of that is coloring your opinion of it, right? And I think in this case, you know, I I did watch the series, so my my opinion here is also colored by it a bit. Uh, I yeah, I think you can you can figure things out without it, but there's enough little elements here and there that are either like cameos from other characters where you kind of like wouldn't really get the context for like who this person is or why they're behaving that way. And just I think in general, it it feels like I would almost compare it to like something like uh, Gundam 0080 War in the Pocket, where it's like the story is self-contained, but the context is kind of lost of like where the, you know, just you don't know any of the other details about this concert band or like, you know, the the, the teacher, like the advisor for it is like in the movie, but is kind of, not like there's no focus on him at all and maybe that doesn't bother people who haven't seen the show but like things like that where you're kind of like all right would you be kind of confused as to why like he isn't talking to them during the movie right like how why is he not a, a part of this story that kind of thing yeah i i think like you're, you're you're basically right i think this is a movie that is so narratively and thematically separate from the tv series that you literally could go into a theater watch this movie walk out and i think come away with you know formed opinions and and an enjoyment yeah you'd mostly get it there there's like some sort of contextual things about like the kind of world around them the school and things that you might you might have a couple questions about or be like i didn't totally pick up on that but you the core story here does not require the series so I, i wouldn't like dissuade people from watching it without the series I think, however, and I think we both can agree on this, that if there is an additional weight um, and nuance that you can really enjoy if having seen The Sound of Phonium first, a lot of that is the his, the history or the context of Misere and those amuse relationship and the strain that they previously went through, because that is sort of a background or kind of a starting point for a lot of the uh, miscommunication and lack of understanding that happens in the film. Yeah, and I think I'll get into this later. That like that I had some trouble picking up on some of the uh, some of like the emotional arc of this movie, and I imagine that would be even harder if you didn't have uh, the context of like the previous stuff from the second season. Yeah, it it definitely plays like a very quiet kind of it's it's, it's a quiet touch to their relationship, but it's still it still colors a lot of how they they communicate with each other and how they perceive the other person. Uh, but yeah, it's great that it can work as a standalone film as well. Yeah, and I, I, I think, you know, we it's a, a good it's a good kind of thing to also just compare. We're, we're doing a little bit of comparison with the series here. This is stylistically very different. This is like a really, really intimate movie. Uh, kind of like compared to the Sound Euphonium TV series, which is a little bit more, um, I get like it's it's a little more of the pop music to this, uh, <laughs> to like the ambient music of this movie, right? It's kind of like cheery and and like it's very big emotions, like I, when the characters are happy or sad, right? And it's a little bit more like a like a soap opera or something, uh, but this is a movie that's like kind of uncomfortably intimate. Uh, the shot composition is like is weirdly tight in a, in a good way but it's it's weird it feels kind of weird because you're watching these characters so closely you're like you know just not even seeing their bodies you're just seeing like their hands or their legs or something i mean it's also i think worth mentioning that for the entirety of this movie 
the only setting we really see them in is the school. So we don't see their personal lives like at home. We don't see their like outdoor school, like after school activities. This is entirely focused, if not within one room in the uh, in the school setting, probably two or three where they're just practicing music. It's extremely focused. It's also missing a an, an entire component of the TV series that is notable, which is there's no actual like competition or anything. Like the the TV series has a whole like the a lot of the story is about the characters preparing for the big concert right and like are they gonna get gold or not right but this uh they are preparing for a big concert but the actual concert is basically irrelevant to the movie right it's about their relationship and it's about them practicing it's about the piece of music but it's not about like the competition right and i guess like in that in that way we can kind of say like i i I don't like usually saying this but like the plot of Listen to Bluebird is not very meaty. I disagree. Well, I mean, in the sense that, like, if you're coming into this exp- like expecting like a lot of things to particularly happen in motion, uh, you're not going to get that, right? I think I, I I would rephrase that as like the the there's not much or there's very little like external conflict to the movie, but there's a lot of internal conflict. I mean, there is a plot. There's a very strong plot here. It's just about characters like discovering things about themselves and negotiating their relationships instead yes. of like overcoming a large external obstacle. Right. It's yeah, like you mentioned with competition or competition from other you know teammates or some you know rivalries and things. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, I, I do like that you, you mentioned this is kind of like an ambient uh, kind of a parallel to the dramatic, um, almost swelling uh, tone of Sambiphonium, because I feel like that tone is very explicit in every component of Listen to Bluebird. And the biggest component, obviously, would be the music of Listen to Bluebird. Um, it's the the soundtrack for this movie, which is done by Kensuke Ushio, is very quiet. It's it's very minimalistic. It's honestly so minimalistic that I I'm a bit ashamed as a musician to admit that I didn't completely pick up on all of it when I first watched it. I, I went back after watching it the first time, and I I kind of watched a couple like sections of it, uh, and I didn't do like a full rewatch. But when I watched it a second time and really like listen to the music more i was like oh wow yeah there's a lot of like really subtle a lot of them are like one or two instruments right for a lot of the the songs it's not like it's not a full orchestra or anything they're just the like like someone plinking on a piano or something yeah it's it's very quiet i actually so kensuke ushio is someone i have seen in anime in terms of of uh, music composition via, I believe, Ping Pong, the animation, as well as A Silent Voice, in which he also collaborated with Yamada On. Uh, but even from those two particular series or um, works, like, Listen to Bluebird is very different. It's, it's, it's extremely ambient. Um, there's a lot of really small details. I think one of the most interesting details from uh, just a pure, just listening to it, by itself, isolated from the film, is that Kensuke Ushio actually adds uh, a lot of environment, uh, or I, I don't know what the term is specifically, Evan. I think you, you're probably thinking of diegetic music. Diegetic music, yes. Like uh, he's he's got, I, I was just, when I was uh, kind of skimming through before, I, I noticed a sequence I didn't notice before, where like the music is 
sort of supposed to be like the the music of the band preparing for practice where it's people just like playing kind of random little snippets of songs and things i mean i think the, the first track right of the of the movie is uh i believe misere walking and that actually sets the pace and the t- uh the beat of that particular arrangement i like that one a lot that's like very sort of staccato that little like boom it's like little boop boop boom 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 I, I couldn't tell the instrument it's like a almost like a xylophone or something yeah i thought it was a xylophone but it yeah like it's it incorporates a lot of these these particular environmental effects or noises that you wouldn't consider as part of a soundtrack and then you listen to it and you're like oh it actually makes sense it's it it's it's very light it's very quiet uh, i believe in an interview yamada said that it's supposed to represent the communication between the two girls it sense it right it's it's a dance it's it's a way of them going back and forth and trying to understand each other and i think that's really well done i think to clarify what you were talking about is slightly different from diegetic music because uh, you're talking about music that mirrors what's happening in the scene right like the that the the timing of the let's call it a xylophone it might may not be a xylophone but like the timing of that being matched to Mizoria's footsteps uh, diegetic music is when the music is occurring in universe. Oh, okay. So it's like a like in a movie if there's a song playing and then like you know the camera pans and it's playing on a record player in the room. It's not like in the it's not in the sort of like imaginary space of the film. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because like there are tracks where like you can hear her open the window or close a door or you know walk from one classroom to another, uh, and it's. I've never kind of seen that in, in a soundtrack before, but it makes perfect sense. Well, it's it, in, interestingly matching the soundtrack to the to the action is a classic cartoon effect. That's like a lot of cartoon music was designed to be exactly that way. If you watch like Looney Tunes, right? A lot of the soundtracks are they're timed exactly to the gags, right? Where like the the music swells at the point when the the you know the character gets hit by a frying pan or something. Right. Yeah. It's. At first, I was a bit confused as to why it happened, but I think kind of like you, as I rewatched the film and and kind of listened to the soundtrack in isolation, it very much heavily occurred to me that the whole the whole component of the music being intrinsically tied to the story and the narrative of Listen to Bluebird is what Yamada wants to focus on. Uh, whether that's through symmetry, whether that's through the addition of these these particular um, ambient noises, whether it's through um, you know particular rise and falls of um, tone and and swelling of the music, I think that's really interesting. And then on top of that layer is the are the actual components and the actual duets uh, that Nozomi and Misery perform. So there's like a lot of layers of, of music. And, and weaving it with the narrative in, in this movie. The the Specifically, the duet that they play is something that, again, like, you know, I, I sort of missed until I went back. I mean, I didn't miss it. They play it in the story. But I meant, like, I, I missed the way that it's incorporated into other aspects and also the way that it evolves as they as they practice it, right? Yes. It was a little bit, like, it. that's established pretty clearly that it evolves, but I didn't, I couldn't necessarily, like, hear the difference at first. I think it's much easier on a second viewing when you know what the final version sounds like versus the version that you hear at the beginning, you know? But the other thing that's that's great, which I completely, I can't believe I missed this, but this is like an, a great, very simple decision that works fantastically. Uh, 
is that that song is what plays during the storybook sequences. Yes. So like it's directly associated with with the story that it's supposed to be depicting. Yeah, it's it's I think the music is definitely worth revisiting the movie alone just because of how tightly uh, it is as a part of the narrative. I would argue that, you know, in so much in anime, we often, you know, correlate the animation, what we see on screen um, as an expression of what's going on. But I think Yamada took very careful steps to work with Ushio to try and extend that to sound, um, which, you know, I'm sure they kind of brought on or evolved from uh, a silent voice. But sound plays such an instrumental role in in the relationship and the the unfolding of um, the perceptions and communications between Nozomi and Mizure. And that the way that's kind of explored via uh, tunes, via, you know, like I said before, the, the dance kind of aspect of the music um, is, is just, it's super neat. I do want to uh, ask the question, the big question uh, that, that I knew was, was tied to this movie going in, which is... Uh, you know, we've got these two female characters with a very strong bond. And uh, is it gay? Is Are they are they gay? Is one of them gay? I, I don't know, Evan. Why didn't you tell me? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, obviously, I I don't have the best perspective on this. But uh, but I would say that it does. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised that uh, Mizore is pretty clearly attracted to Nozomi. Uh, and this is not even like a spoiler. This is like at the very beginning of the story, it's very clear uh, that her her interest in Nozomi is not just like just as a close friend, but she has these. And I love the way this is shot. She has these like specific fixations on like parts of her body, like her ponytail, the way it moves or she like recognizes the way that she walks Right, like these things that are just not like usually. I think what people feel about just friends, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. I, I certainly don't think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I feel like it's pretty explicitly gay coded as as one can get from these kind of series. No, there isn't like kissing or hands holding or like extreme blushing going on, and I don't think this. This is kind of where we get into those conversations about the word baiting. Um, I think Liz and the Bluebird is really unique in the way it talks about relationships. So in my opinion, you cannot even apply those standards because the way it goes about talking about codependent relationships and infatuation and perceptions of another person in such an intimate and first person's perspective is so unique. And I would almost say very um, unlike a lot of anime we watch when it comes to romantically coded things. So I personally think it's very gay. Uh, is it is it explicit in the in the physical uh, sense that we we use to determine if something's gay? No, it's not. Yeah, I mean, so obviously as a, a non queer person here, uh, <laughs> like I I don't have like the the personal perspective on this but I, I i am i do get a little frustrated i'm not looking for stuff that's physically explicit it's more so i get frustrated when characters are expressing feelings that like nobody in the in universe kind of like recognizes as oh this person might be gay like either recognizes about themselves or recognizes about someone else right it's it's always like like almost like a plausible deniability like oh well if the fans want it to be it can be right and it's like leaving this this breadcrumb trail 
but it's like straight characters are allowed to just be straight right like they don't you don't have to leave a breadcrumb trail for them no absolutely and i mean the weird thing about this movie is that because it it's so isolated it's very hard to kind of establish the universe around it like the most interactions we get right is is like other than you know um nozomi and misere talking to each other is with their fellow bandmates and that is even kind of really downplayed i think the, the most that you get is the friendship that evolves between misery and um and her bandmate yeah which is pretty key to the story right to like to her development is like this person outside of this outside of this very tight kind of fixated relationship that she has with nozomi is like a person sort of trying to inject themselves in there and be like hey i want to have a relationship with you she wants to be friends with her right it's like her her kohai and she's like i i I want to be someone who like knows you who's not nozomi and it's like this very weird thing for misery right but i think it's fair to say that in in contrasting those relationships you can clearly see much more romantic or intimate vibes for from misery to nozomi as opposed to her kohai right like um and i think that lends to that perspective that yes we can see misery as someone who has very strong romantic feelings uh toward i think you could you could read it as as being one-sided that's that's kind of how i read it but you i mean it's hard to say one way or another about nozomi but like misery is is obviously yeah like you said very coded that way i can definitely see how people would say nozomi is not necessarily um and i think part of that is is the narrative exploration, right? Which is, Nozomi doesn't really pay attention to Misere. She doesn't really contextually think about how instrumental, uh, pun intended, uh, Misere is <laughs> to her life, right? And Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's very much, uh, you, you get the sense over, over time, you know, with the way that, and again, this is like the, the shot composition, the way that we kind of see all their little glances and things, just how... It's, you know, Nozomi is sometimes looking at Mizore and then oftentimes looking at other people. Mizore is always looking at Nozomi. Right. <laughs> right. It's like there's there's much more focus from one end of it. Yes. And I think a lot of this, and this is, we can probably expand on this a little bit later, is that whereas the, the focus of Lose in the Bluebird seems to initially be from Mizore's point of view, uh, Nozomi is a lot more nuanced, I think. She... She obviously puts Misery in a box of this is who this person is to me and kind of leaves it at that. And then as as the shit movie goes on, you kind of see how that's interwoven with like a sense of inferiority complex and and a sense of codependency that's not healthy for either one of them. Which is why I do think I would say Nozomi um, is gay for Misery. Is it it's not explicit in the sense that Misery uh, is for Nozomi, but I think the resolution and the parallel to Liz in the Bluebird as a storybook pretty much put it out there that they both really, really like each other. Uh, they just have a very hard time talking about it. Uh, now, whether that resolves in a, in a happy ending where they get together or something, you know... I guess we don't want to spoil what the ending looks like, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Is, is more bittersweet is probably what lends to some of that confusion. But in my opinion, Nozomi is a very... She comes to me as someone who doesn't necessarily know her feelings and isn't self-aware of how she feels and wants to do things. 
And so in that aspect, it's obviously messier to say, is she gay or is she not gay? But to me, I think I think it's pretty much established that she does have some feelings toward Misere, for sure. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely possible to read it in either direction for her. But I mean, if someone tried to watch this movie and told me Misore wasn't gay, I'd be like, come on, come on, did you watch the same movie as me? <laughs> I think it's, it's, yeah, it's very easy because a lot of this is from Misere's perspective. And we only get Nozomi's kind of conflicts and, and uh, problems kind of later down the movie. So... I feel like that kind of lends to the perspective of, oh, I'm not really sure if Nozomi feels the same way. We haven't talked a ton about the the art yet. Uh, and I wanted to talk about a, a notable thing here, which is the character designs, which are completely different uh, stylistically from the the main Sound Euphonium series. So the characters still look recognizably like their original versions, but they're not, uh, they don't, they're not drawn the same in in a whole lot of ways. Uh, they're they're kind of like lanky in a way that's very different from the series. Uh, their their eyes are smaller. Uh, just everything is kind of like a, a bit subtler and and less cute. I think, which I as as someone who has fought in the Moe Wars, very much appreciate. I mean, like I, they're not unattractive characters, but I don't think they're like cute in that more traditional way that a lot of characters are. They don't have the big Moe like big sparkly eyes, right? Um, I think the word I would use is that. Anisha's designs are probably very soft. I think the first word I can think of is, is soft, right? They, there's no really harsh well, on, a, lines. on a certain level. I don't know. On a certain level, though, they, they there's a certain angularity to the like the line work. I think, but but I I think I know what you mean. Like the the way that the way that the shapes are drawn and stuff makes them feel kind of soft. But yeah, like the way that the shapes are defined. But I think the line work has a little bit of like a a little bit of a scratchiness to it. I think it's interesting, and you know, a thought I just had is that the character designs almost lend themselves to really work with what Yamada focuses on best, which is body expression. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> right. So, like, her, the eyes are very expressive in these designs. Uh, the limbs, as you mentioned, are very kind of lanky, but also very fluid, um, very detailed. I think a, th- a thing about the limbs, by the way, that really, you know, especially when you're talking about body language, that that works great for me is that I think a lot of times anime characters in high school, they don't feel awkward in the way that high schoolers are, right? Because they're supposed to be attractive because there's, you know, you want to sell character goods or whatever, but like they feel awkward here. They feel like kind of ungainly, you know, the, the proportions feel maybe just a little bit off the way that like a growing teenagers, you know, feels like maybe their arms are too long or something. Right. Right. Like, right. No, no, no. I'm- I feel like Yamada really gets the gravity and the the awkwardness of of adolescence in in expression, whether it's you know twiddling the thumbs, kind of putting your hands behind your back, kind of like shifting the way from that Mizore like, grabs her hair. Yes, right. Great. Like a little, I love it. I always love it when a character has like a little tick like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whether it's like you know shifting from one way on one leg to the other, like all of those kind of small details that you know reveal a lot about a person are very much focused on here. And I think the character designs lend a lot to that focus because of where they particularly choose to focus on, on the characters, which is mainly like, like you mentioned, very strong close-ups on the face, on the arms, on the hands, on the, on the legs, uh, very much the legs. Yamada's always been a leg person. So uh, <laughs> she just, she just really loves the, the leg expression. Um, but yeah, it's great. I, I think body language plays a huge role in, in this movie and the character designs really, really work well with that. 
So I, I will say, interestingly, though, overall, I like the art in the storybook sections much more. Uh, but it's kind of a thing where it's like I get I I get and I very much appreciate what the art is doing in the the real life sections. Right. Uh but I, I actually do find that the, the kind of more cartoony artwork that they use and the more to, more cartoony character designs for the, the storybook sections, that's like more my speed. You know, I tend to like things that are a little more uh, like, yeah, I, I like it cartoony, but not like that kind of, you know, um, anime mascot character, like, you know, uh, like that kind of, again, like Moe to use that that phrase, right? Um so like I love that these these storybook sections are like night and day with the real life scenes. They're brightly colored. They have these really kind of rounded, simple shapes. Uh, it's still very lushly drawn, right? But but has like a simplicity and a uh, like a kind of flow to it that you know calls to mind like film animation that like like family animation you know it, it makes me think of disney or ghibli or things like that yes right it's very immediately accessible and charming i think mm-hmm. is it's well first of all the colors are incredibly vibrant oh my god the color design <laughs> right and the, the opening scene is from the storybook and i was like holy shit is this what this movie's gonna look like and i was like oh okay it looks good, but it doesn't look like that for the whole movie. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's a fantasy world, and it's, it's, it, it really expresses that, right? Like, you've got these vibrant blues, you've got the flowers, you've got the bakery setting, you've got the details of the house and the forest, you've got the details. Even the animals kind of have their own charm to them. Um, it's, it's very pristine, I guess is the word I would use. It's, it's very clean. It very much resembles a world untouched by reality. And as a result, whenever we enter those storybook sequences, it feels comforting, right? It feels very charming. Like you mentioned, kind of like a cartoon. <laughs> it's all a cartoon. But yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> right, a cartoon within a cartoon, yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's fun, it's magical, it's dreamy. I think the word, the word I would use here most is dreamy. Whereas in you know, the real world of where Misere and Nozomi are, it's much more muted tones, right? We get... We get those muted oranges and the whites, the pale blues. Uh, the, the bluest color we really ever see, or the strongest color we really ever see in the real world, is the feather that Misery has, and maybe the blue sky. Um, but everything else is is very soft and and not strongly colored. Yeah, desaturated. Yes, it's it's a, it's a contrast I like. I actually really like that a lot because um, I think one thing as artists we're always kind of unconsciously forming as a as a as a parallel is that muted colors mean something is drab or uninteresting uh i would argue completely otherwise in this film the muted colors in was in the blue bird do not serve as a resemblance of oh the life that misere and nozomi lead is monotonous or boring it's quite contrary and uh, in so much times in anime we we have a lot of really strong color use but we never see like muted colors as a as an exploration for how to look at feelings or or create particular uh, atmospheres. And I think Liz and Bluebird does a great job of using that to its benefit of of quiet subtleness. Uh, 
Um, I definitely like I like that subtlety more just to compare with the TV series. I, I do like it a bit more than the TV series, which I think has very nice colors. But they I think when you put it up against something like this, uh, they feel uh, I don't know, it feels a little bit. I don't, I don't want to like this is this is too mean a word to use, but it's like it's garish by comparison, right? Everything kind of looks like this very, very, you know, highly rendered, like, you know, illustration someone would make. Yes. But I think this has a lot more like nuance to it. It's like every everything doesn't have to look beautiful in this kind of traditional way. Yes. You know. I I mean beauty beauty's in the eye of the beholder, but I I think I get what you're saying. Like I think in in the world of anime where everything is very overt, color sequences, color palettes are very overt. Um, even in the character designs, Misery has a very strong dark bluish, not dark blue, but kind of navy bluish hair, right? Um, it's much more muted in the movie. Uh, even the eye colors are less, uh, less saturated. And once again, you can always correlate that with, oh, uh, more realistic, more drab, more gloomy. But Yamada really uses this color palette to her benefit by creating very intimate sequences, um, especially in a classroom uh, setting where characters are often isolated by chairs by the sunlight kind of hanging over uh the the windows as it's setting and they're playing you know till evening um whether it's you know the reflection of someone in the window while they're playing their instruments whether it's uh you know the the shuffling of two chairs kind of getting together as as they both look over the storybook together um, by not focusing and not making the colors so extravagant, I think Yamada can really focus on the aspect she wants, which is the relationship and body expressions between Misere and Nozomi. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about, as much as we can without spoiling, the climax of the movie. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll have a little spoiler section at the end, like we usually do, where uh, we'll talk about stuff for folks who have already seen it or folks who don't care about spoilers. Um but what I'll say is the 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 parallels between the storybook and the and real life, you know, are, are a, that's a key part of like the 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 main arc of this movie. Mm-hmm. And I, one of the things that I think really threw me off, and this is like you know we've been saying a lot of positive things. This is like one of the things that made it not uh, not perfectly work for me. Is that that there starts to be? Let's see, how do I say this without spoiling? Like. <laughs> As as it as it starts to kind of play with that those parallels and and it sort of changes up some of the way that you look at the parallels between them, right? Uh, the the like kind of mapping from the real world to the storybook, it started to get a little bit like confusing for me. And I think part of it is that this this seemed very strange to me that there's not a lot of like visual representation of the the parallels at a certain point. Like, I and mean, really, there re- there really isn't a lot of direct visual parallels. Uh, not at least not very overt ones uh, for most of the movie, uh, and it's kind of established through dialogue. And I I found at least that in like the kind of climax of the movie when it so when it establishes this new way of looking at it entirely through dialogue, I was kind of like, okay, wait a sec, what am I? Hold on, like I had to pause it. I played it back. I felt like I had to like draw it out to make sure I like understood what the characters were conveying. And for me, that kind that blunted some of the emotional impact of like you know as that kind of builds i i can definitely see where you're what you're saying like i 
I think the first time I watched it, I was also a little confused. I mean, I like it's part of me like that understood what was going on, but at the same time, I was like, is it? Is that really what's going on? Am I, am I interpreting this as it as it should be? Am I missing something here? Like it, it felt like something where like you're in animation and you have this kind of surreal connection between a, this you know imagined fantasy world and the real world, and I was kind of expecting to see this visual culmination of that, right? And it that never really happens, or it. it does in one particular scene uh very subtly and that did help uh kind of convey it more directly but there's an earlier scene which we'll we'll talk about in more detail in the the spoiler section that's like does it just through dialogue and that's where i was starting to be like wait a sec what (laughs) so i think the biggest confusion point is that there is a disconnect and i wonder if this is partly because we're so used to consuming anime that we expect certain things to be done a certain way um but the the twist, I, I I really don't like using the word twist. But it, it's not really a twist, but it's a it's a shift, right? It's 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 the core shift of the movie that kind of creates the the final resolution. So something we may be aware of, but the characters are not aware of, kind of suddenly all comes into one point. But the way it's done doesn't explicitly state how the characters have processed this revelation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. very explicitly. So. You can come at it at an angle of, oh, was this the, what's, I guess, the twist or the, the revelation I was having throughout the entire movie, and now they are on the same page as me, or was it something completely different, and now they have realized it, but I haven't. So, like, that was kind of my confusion. I was like, wait, was I overthinking this? That's a great way of putting it. Where, I, like, I think I was kind of following it, but then uh, when they start, especially, like, it's when the when the characters are saying, like, Liz and the Bluebird, and they're, like, saying those those character names, but we're not seeing them. Like it, it made me feel a little dumb that I was like, wait a sec, whoa, 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 which one, which one? Okay, okay. Like, cause now, now I have to map. Like, I, just, it's just like names, you know. I'm not seeing the character, and it's like much easier if you kind of have like some kind of visual representation. Maybe that's like too obvious for this movie, but that felt like that would have helped. Yeah, I think, and that's the thing is like the first time you watch it, you're just like, wait, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. Like everything has been so direct or straightforward kind of speaking in terms of the parallels between the storybook and the main characters that when you do this flip it it's either yes that's what i expected the whole time but you didn't put it out in my face so strongly like you have done with all these other parallels that now i'm starting to get maybe i'm overthinking it doubting myself yeah yeah Yeah. so i can definitely see that um but that said i do think that it is clarified in the climax scene yeah 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 i agree so that is why i'm a lot more forgiving of it i do think that scene could have been i also think like when i went back and watched a couple scenes it was immediately apparent to me that like you know if you if you watch this a second time uh there's all sorts of stuff that like really points to that very clearly uh that i you know kind of understood but i didn't like i didn't put all the pieces together myself until it was it was you know placed there at the end of the movie uh, but but it's it's all there. It's just I think you know that that final like you said that that final kind of revelation doesn't exactly like lead you all the way there in a super satisfying way. But if you know it's there, I think it's like a lot more. It makes a lot more sense. You can see all of the stuff that points to it. Yes, I agree. Um, and I think that's kind of another thing with Yamada's works is that the weight that carries the first time of watching it versus the weight that it carries the second time are usually very different nuances uh they're different weights like 
you you can come come out watching things like Listen to Bluebird and A Silent Voice the first time. You're like, well, here are my opinions on it. And then you come back and watch it a second time. Like, wait, wait, wait. There's a lot of interesting minor details in here that really color uh, a lot of the more subtle nuances differently that I didn't really pick up on the first time. And I think that's actually something I really like about Yamada. Like, I understand that it it makes her less accessible or less immediately accessible, but I appreciate the kind of thought that she puts in to her scenes, even if they're not immediately, like, uh, like they're, if they're not immediate, I guess is the word I would use. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting that you were talking about, like, her being less accessible, because I'm not a big fan of the a Silent Voice movie, and it's not exactly because I thought it was too accessible, but I did kind of think it was a little too, like, sweet, you know, and... And two, uh, I mean, again, like, like I, I kind of used this this parallel before, but like too much like a pop song, right? Like too much trying to make you feel good. Whereas I liked that the manga is much more like raw and messy than the the movie. It's not quite the same thing, but it's just, it, it, yeah, like this is definitely a movie that is, I liked much more than that because it is kind of messy and it's it's not just like this sweet, nice love story, which is not, not to, <laughs> not to say a silent voice is just a sweet love story, but Compared to the manga, I was coming in with those expectations, you know. Well, I think it's also fair to say that compared to a silent voice, where you had, she was kind of put in a weird position where she had the one shot, but then she had this entire like series to adapt. Uh, Liz and the Bluebird is, if and correct me if I'm wrong, almost in- if not completely entirely original. Oh, actually, I I thought it, I we, we I'm surprised that neither of us uh, double checked this, but. I thought it was based in part on some content from the the novels that a uh, sound euphonium is based on. It, it could be. I, I I would definitely want to double check on that. But the the perspective of I'm just speaking out of gut feeling here. But I'm I'm assuming that the kind of was in the bluebird storybook parallels and the exploration of this kind of relationship and the emotional complexity of it is something that Yamada. I think that makes sense. Yeah, even if there's some original. Even if the the novel has some kind of basis for this story, it it definitely feels like without having without knowing for sure, this feels like the sort of thing that was developed, you know, for this movie. It 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 feels hard to imagine this like in book form, like this that this was would have been just written into the book as yes, is. Yes, right. It entirely relies on the medium of of video and audio and and imagery. It actually uh, reminds me a little bit, like just. Again, we don't know for sure here. We didn't. We're not, and we're not fact checking live on the show. But uh, <laughs> but what well, what? But talking about this reminds me of like only yesterday, which is based on a manga where like Takahata used the stories from the manga, but he constructed an entire like frame narrative that completely reframes the story. Yes, absolutely. I think it's it's very similar to that. And in that sense, I think she has a lot more complete control over what she wants to discuss, whereas you know, a silent voice there are already narratives and themes there that she has to like dilute and dissect and extract and kind of like fit together. And compress from a long manga. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I definitely think the cards were not stacked in her favor in a silent voice, whereas she has a lot more free reign with those in the bluebird. And I think that works a lot more in her favor here because um, it flows really smoothly. Uh, there's, there's really not a component or segment of those in the bluebird where you can take out a scene and then say, or, or say and it's just a scene was extraneous or unnecessary. I think it, it all kind of flows together to this, this central climax that we were speaking about. And that is why the catharsis works so well. Yeah, and it's it's a movie that I don't think has like 
an immediately apparent, uh, like, obvious plot structure. You know, it feels a bit meandering, but nothing feels out of place. Like, nothing feels like it's just some filler scene. Right. Yeah, because everything is kind of developing, quietly developing you know, these characters, uh, their relationship and their emotional state. So it's kind of, it's like this classic thing I love to yell at people about where, you know, someone might look at this and be like, oh, it's slice of life. And it's like, well, no, it's a drama that is just very quiet and subtle about it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, there is nothing like, I I don't want to give the impression that Listen to Bluebird is a light anime, nor is it like, no, it's pretty heavy. It's, it's, (laughs) it's pretty heavy. Um, it's not something you're going to like leave, like, wanting to kind of like stare at the ceiling for 10 hours and question your life and existence. It's not that kind of heavy, but it does, it does explore relationships in a really interesting way that I feel we don't dig into a lot of times in anime. If, if not, it's almost a commentary on, on those kind of relationships that we kind of gloss over in anime very often. I think, I think, uh, oh yeah. Oh boy. This is maybe the the thing that might rub people the wrong way here. Uh, I think that sometimes uh, when people are watching anime, which is by and large uh, not, you know, not like art films. A lot of TV anime is is this just mass market entertainment. I think sometimes uh, people people are, are seeing a little more than is there, you know, and trying to like discuss these like much more complex emotional issues that are, are not exactly in the text uh and are you know bringing bringing more of their own personal experience to it which is fine um but i think that like liz and the bluebird i think it is in the text like that that kind of like really complex emotional negotiation going on between these characters and like sorting out this messy complicated relationship uh, that that's not something where i think people are like projecting that onto the story that's totally in it <laughs> i i mean there's nothing wrong with i think you know it being there and kind of in the in the background, but never being explicitly resolved. But I think it makes Elizabeth Bluebird all the more special for explicitly taking a hard look at some of these issues that we often gloss over, especially in adolescent relationships. Um, and I think that's kind of, you know, on a more personal note, that's why I think this movie is really great because um, – as, as teens, we, we think we know everything. We think we know other people really well. We think we know ourselves really well. Uh, and oftentimes in anime, uh, that's narratively used as a coming of age kind of story where we realize maybe we don't know that much about the world that we thought. But in Listen to Bluebird, it's explored in this very intimate way of how it's, it's not about knowing the other person. It's about communicating to understand the other person. Communication is a huge part of Listen to Bluebird. Um, and that's something I really, really, really love about the movie so i'm not sure if if that constitutes your final thoughts but i'm gonna give my final thoughts (laughs) yeah yeah go for it uh before we move on to the spoiler section uh and uh maybe we'll do some some questions and then we'll do spoilers so i want to say uh i've i've conveyed a lot of this already in some form Uh, i like this movie considerably more than the sound euphonium tv series which i i enjoyed but but wasn't like as obsessed with as a lot of other people uh this is a really subtle movie. Uh, sometimes, you know, I think a little a little too subtle, but I prefer that over stories that are this, you know, big, loud, clumsy melodrama. The production is beautiful, especially those storybook sections. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, if you can follow the, the, you know, big emotional arc of it, it's, uh, it's very complex and it's, and there's a lot that you could discuss about it. Uh, 
so it didn't like you know it didn't work for me on like a deep emotional level on the first viewing but i think this is the kind of movie that i will enjoy a whole lot more on a second viewing and i i it makes me think of um of like two particular movies that are also pretty like emotionally complex that i either didn't enjoy or just only sort of enjoyed on the first viewing which is uh whisper of the heart from studio ghibli and uh and in this corner of the world which is now one of my favorite anime movies <laughs> Uh, but it was really like the, you know, both of those, Whisper of the Heart, I was kind of like, eh, it's cute, I guess, right? And on the second viewing, I noticed a lot more that's going on under the surface. And in this corner, I was, I I enjoyed it, but I, I didn't like get super into it. And let me tell you, when I watched that movie a second time, I was basically crying from start to finish. <laughs> so like in a week, everyone's going to come back to us and be like, yo, yo <laughs> yeah so i can i can detect from this movie that this is the kind of movie that if i watched it if i really sat down and watched it again from start to finish knowing how it ends i would have a much different response to it yeah yeah i i think obviously for me on a personal note it speaks a lot um i think also in terms of the content it's dealing with in terms of communication and uh, being expressive, especially as a woman, uh, especially as a shy woman, uh, I think it says a lot there that we don't often see in anime. And um, it, it's a bit, it's it's a very heartbreaking portrayal, a bittersweet portrayal, I would say, of what it means to have honest communications and intimate understandings of someone you're very close to, romantically. <laughs> oh, uh. <laughs> asterisk. <laughs> They're just, they're, you, know, you know, not putting aside the gal pal context there, but yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I thought they were just uh, roommates and business partners. Oh, yeah. No, they're just, they're just bandmates that, you know, played a band. That, that That's really all it is. Not, nothing to see here. Just keep, keep watching. So let's answer a couple questions and then we'll get on to spoilers and then, uh, then we're done. Uh, I, we have... We have a bunch of questions. They're all from Anazel. So Anazel, really the the real MVP of this episode. <laughs> Thank you so much for for all all of these good questions. They're they're great. So uh, some of these are, are things that I mentioned at the top in his uh, his initial message. Uh, I'd love to hear Natasha's take on the relationship aspect and how she felt about one person so obviously in love while the other is oblivious. Um, but then how great it is to overcome that and be independent. Okay, so do we do we want to do spoilery or not spoilery? This is not spoilery. This is not spoilery. Okay, uh, I think it's one of the best parts about this film. Um, I think there is often a time, like as I expressed before in anime, where codependency is seen as something positive. Uh, you see this so often with all of these type of problematic relationships that you know I love personally. You know, as part of part of uh, digesting fantasy and. and good escapist media, but uh, it's unhealthy. And uh, oftentimes in media, we see that kind of intimacy that, that, oh, they're my soulmate, or, you know, they're my brother, or they're my deep friend, and I just know everything about them, and we just get each other. And um, one, how kind of unrealistic that is. And number two, how that can be really unhealthy, and um, how communication is integral to any kind of relationship. And I think Elizabeth Buber does such a great take on how in any relationship, it's a two-way communication. It's a two-way street. Uh, you're improving the other person, but you also have to improve yourself. You have to make yourself a better person. So um, not just for other people, but for yourself as well. And I think the resolution to it is a very mature and nuanced take on those kind of teenage relationships 
um, and something we all kind of come to see ourselves at any given point in time in our lives. And it's just great to see a movie that really kind of puts that at the forefront and talks about it. So um, I love it. I think it's easily the best part of Lizard the Bluebird. It's pretty much the reason why I try and get any of my friends to watch it. Uh, whether I succeed is a different question, but it's, it is, it is a great, great topic and it sends a great message. Uh, I think actually looking at some of, of these questions, a lot of them are things that we basically already covered. So I'll just end us on one specific one that I don't think we, we directly addressed, which is how rewarding or not rewarding is the ending. Again, without spoiling too much, I would say it's not exactly rewarding. I mean, parts of it are. The, the final resolution of where these characters end up is, is satisfying in, in a way, right, of seeing them kind of overcome these communication issues on, on at least some level. Uh, but it's not like, uh, it's not neat and tidy. It's not like a happy ending. It's a, it's a we're, we're working on it ending, you know, like, and I think that's kind of the point. Well, I think that's that's in a way what's rewarding about it is that it's not neat. It's not tied up because the relationships are not neat and tied up. They're not, you know, a, put a little bow on them and call it a day. Uh, they are always a work in progress. And I think that in itself is a very rewarding and cathartic message to send. That is it for the question segment. It's time for spoilers. If you would uh if you would like to watch Liz and the Bluebird and you don't want to be spoiled for this uh this climax that we have been dancing around then uh I suggest you tune out here otherwise everybody else uh keep on listening yeah speaking of communication and and dancing around uh topics <laughs> yeah so just to clarify for anybody who has seen it and you know now I can say the scene that I was talking about I'm talking about the scene where Mizore is talking to the I forget her name that the, the teacher or the she's like an advisor she's like the music advisor or whatever for their section she has this revelation about like that she was thinking of herself as liz that you know she was this shy girl who had this this amazing um you know very very friendly person come into her life right and uh that she couldn't understand why the um why liz would would let the bird uh go right and why she would like let it let let the bird fly away when when she loved the bird so much so the revelation is is that it's that it's the inverse that she's actually the bird and that nozomi is liz and nozomi is sort of keeping uh is like holding holding mizori back so the revelation is great when you figure it out Right? Like, it's a great concept that it's like flipping this whole thing on its head. The problem is that it's that scene is done by having, by cutting back and forth between them and having them say, like, I thought I was Liz and I was the bluebird, but now, right? And, and I think it wasn't even actually part of this might be the subtitles because it, it was actually, I think the, this is like a weirdly weird thing to focus on, like one line that threw me off. But the way that it was translated, at least, maybe this is in the original Japanese is that Mizore doesn't say, I thought I was Liz. She says, I associated with Liz. I associated myself with Liz, right? And that line, I think, just especially kind of like threw me for a loop because associated with could mean that she's talking about Nozomi as Liz and I associated with Nozomi mm, as opposed to I thought of myself as Liz. So I actually think this is ambiguous for a very good reason. And that the whole, my, my like take on this, which I'm not entirely sure, like once again, maybe me overthinking it, is that it's intentionally ambiguous because they both 
are both of the characters, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, I could see that. They're, like, holding each other back. Yeah, like, they are Liz, but they are also the bluebird. Like, Misery is both, and so is Nozomi. They're just different aspects of each character. So, like, I have took that scene as a way of interpreting, oh, like, I thought I was this, but I am also this, or I am this as well. Uh, now, it doesn't matter which one you think it is originally, because now the whole point is that you think it's the other one as well, right? So he's like, oh, I thought I was A, but I'm B. Or I could be say I'm, I'm B, but I'm also A. But I, I, I do think that scene would work better, for me at least, if there was like a visual swap of some sort, right? Like, I'm, and that's, you know... Again, it's a very subtle movie, but I I don't know. I kind of think when you're doing this kind of surreal animated thing where you're you're paralleling them, it, it sort of behooves you to like use that <laughs> to convey it, right? I think so like narratively speaking, it makes sense. Like it am, ambiguousness, ambiguity is is something that's constant throughout a lot of this movie and works in the favor of the viewer and in favor of the characters and what they're going through, right? Like so Ambiguity from a visual, like a uh, an audience perspective, is who is functioning as who, and what does the other person think of the other person? Uh, is this explicit? Is it not explicit? Why isn't it explicit? Is it explicit because we live in a we're in a environment where women kind of aren't allowed to be expressive about these particular things? Is it ex- is it not explicit because these characters themselves don't even know what they're expressing? Is it because they? are teenagers and we just you know they are unaware of their own situations like ambiguity is a huge part so like i think it works in this sense it's just the execution of it could have been a little stronger if that makes sense Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah 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 i mean i (laughs) trust me uh i would think naoko yamada could figure out a way to do it visually that would still be subtle and ambiguous right i mean she's she's a very good director yes yeah um but I think so much of the film, like the, the previous material before this with all of the expressions, like there are just certain movies that like moments that really stand out, right? Like the, the moment where uh, Misery puts her, like outstretches her hands, her arms to, you know, ask Nozomi to do a friendship hug and she, Nozomi just walks away, right? Is, is completely like that there's, it's, it's very impactful. Um, nothing extraordinarily happens in that scene. So I think Yamada works really well with these moments of poignance and, and silence, but obviously that speaks so much, uh, even though nothing verbally is being conveyed. And I think that's kind of what she was trying to go for with that climax as well, which is why I think the performance works really well. Yeah, the performance works much better. Yes, it expands on that. Because you're like, oh, well, maybe I'm not really getting this. And then she kind of explicitly says, well, this is what I'm going for with the whole duet performance between... Uh, and Misery. Yeah, because what it does is it, it intercuts these beautifully animated, like semi-abstract shots of the bluebird with Misore playing her part. So sort of representing that like her, she is performing the part of the bluebird. Um, yeah, so that definitely helped convey it. I felt like what made it all not land perfectly was that it, it sort of felt like that scene was supposed to be where... Uh, like the the sort of um like I, I don't know, <laughs> the word I'm thinking of is punchline, but like the the final delivery of like this thing that was set up in the previous one. But I think if you're confused by the first one and you discover it during the performance, like I didn't feel the same emotional weight as if I had already figured it out and then was seeing it kind of blossom in front of me. Mm. You know? It's interesting you say that because I think a lot of the emotional weight is 
the 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 duet scene itself is very powerful, but I actually think the conversation that happens after duet scene is a lot more explicit. That's true. That's that's like its own like major climax. It's true. Right, and I think like once again, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, where Nozomi is a very complicated character because we don't see her from Misere, we don't see her own perspective. And that is a scene where we finally see how she perceives Misere. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's clearly shown to be someone that Misere is putting on a pedestal. Um, she is a little vain. She's a little, she's very selfish. We, we kind of knew that from the second season of Euphonium, but like even now more so, she's kind of been using Misere to promote her own vanity and how she feels about herself. Um, in this kind of cruel way, but not necessarily fully intentional, just kind of subconsciously. Um, And I think that is probably the most heartbreaking part of the movie, is that Misere always kind of knew this, but she doesn't quite care, because to her, Nozomi kind of helped open her world up and and gave her the opportunity to play the oboe. Um, I think there's a very impactful line in that that scene where, you know, Misere is listing all these things she loves about Nozomi, and Nozomi says the one thing she loves about Misery is how she plays the oboe. And that, I think, very much is carries a lot of, of that climax in, in that one line, right? Which is, um, Misery has spent all this time focusing on Nozomi. And, and finally, she's learning to kind of focus on the oboe to express herself, uh, which is a step forward in communication. But Nozomi is someone who is so unaware that she kind of wakes up to uh, Misery's oboe as a as a cry, not a cry for help, but as a realization of her own that this is who Misery is, and she has been using her in these these kind of convenient ways for the longest time, and she needs to like also be vulnerable and open up about herself. I've been watching Sing Yesterday for me, and uh, this this movie is a much better uh, story about someone who's fixated on someone who they should uh, should get over. Or should at least kind of like get over their fixation of. Uh, whereas Sing Yesterday for me seems to just be about how like, hey, it's fine to be fixated, I guess. Right, right. And like, once again, we see that so often in in the in like anime. It's like, oh, I really like this girl. Or, you know, like we were childhood friends and she's never loved me, but I will always chase after her. And it's like, no, dude, you got to like get over that and like... Kind of love yourself, free yourself. Not not to spoil it too much, but uh, one of my favorite anime movies of all time, five centimeters per second, is about this as well. the the good The good version of this the, that we're talking about about being mature. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like I I very much respect uh, that the ending of this movie is about two people who have learned more about each other and more about themselves. And are still willing to kind of take the efforts to address their relationship. It's not perfect. It's not, you know, pristine. It's not cute. Like, they both have codependent problems. But they're willing to address that. And I think that speaks volumes, especially in, in like, queer works. Where, you know, where unhealthy relationships can sometimes be a component of, of queerness. But they're never fully addressed. Um... I mean, like, we could tackle, we could tackle a whole discussion on that. But like, you know, in often in queer stories, uh, they're messy, right? Because, you know, discovering your queer is, is never a clean process. Um, and so it comes with this kind of messy and dramatic um, revelation. Um, 
And sometimes it does address that messiness. Sometimes it doesn't. I do appreciate that in Lizard of Bluebird, uh, it does. It, it talks about this is not okay. Like you cannot live off a relationship in this kind of weird, not weird, but in in this very unhealthy manner. Um, and yeah, it's great. It's great stuff. Yeah, I uh, definitely, you know, despite some of my issues with it, recommend that people check this movie out. And I do recommend that you, you uh, if possible, uh, check it out a second time if you didn't, you know, if you if you like me found some appeal to it, but but didn't totally, uh, it, you know, didn't totally jive with you perfectly. Anyway, uh, that's it for this episode. We went a little bit long, but I think it was all good stuff. Uh, before we head out, Natasha... What do you, uh, where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Yeah, sure. Uh, you can find me and my many thoughts on anime on Twitter uh, as Illegenes, I-L-L-E-G-E-N-E-S. Uh, you can find some of the more personal posts I write on shibirudaro.wordpress.com. Uh, and if you want some more formal writing, I also write for Crunchyroll and IGN. You can find some posts there as well cool uh i am writing (laughs) i haven't written for a while for them but i i still periodically write for otaku usa magazine i i guess i updated animeburgertime.tumblr.com recently we have a patreon uh (laughs) as you are no doubt aware because we just did a whole episode based on a request from a patron uh support us on patreon.com slash anigamers five dollars gets you into the priority question list and you get access to bonus articles and podcasts and uh, $1 gets you uh, the ability to vote on some polls that we will occasionally put out uh, to help us decide what to talk about and things like that. And uh, next episode, we will have some more thank yous for some uh, some new patrons who signed up this past month. You can check out show notes, blog posts, and a link to the official Anigamers Discord on Anigamers.com. Reminder, the Discord is not a patron-only Discord, so you can join for free. Come hang out. We... Uh, we play games sometimes. Uh, everybody's talking about, I think a lot of people are talking about manga recently. Email us questions, responses, and topic suggestions at podcast at anygamers.com or talk to us on Twitter. I'm at sign Vampto, V-A-M-P-T-V-O. Anygamers is at sign Anygamers, one word. I'm on Mastodon at Vamptvo at mastodon.social. And finally, episodes are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music for now until they switch over to the new thing and Spotify. And we could always use more reviews to help people find the show. Thank you, Natasha, for uh, joining me and for for contributing all of your wonderful insights to this episode. Thank you so much for having me. So it's always a blast to be on here. So thank you for that. And thank you, uh, listeners, for listening. We'll see you again in about two weeks or maybe sooner. We've been putting out some extra content in between main episodes. Later. Later.